Today, we're talking to the professor behind the first FDA-approved video game, Adam Ghazali, about the intersection of video games and neuroscience. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. I got to speak to one of your writing partners. That's how I got introduced to you. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Larry Rosen. How did you meet Larry? I think he reached out to me um, with the idea for the book, is my recollection. And uh, first I was like, no way, (laughs) because I didn't want to write a book. But he sort of presented it in a way that made me consider. And then I thought it was the right thing. But yeah, we didn't know each other until we wrote the book together. And what research of yours did he consume to where he thought, hey, I need to reach out to Adam to be a partner on this book? Well, our research is so different than each other. So he focuses on, I would I would call it like field psychology, like what happens in the real world when techs and brains meet each other, children at school doing Facebook and texting, and I do the opposite. I work in a laboratory, we put people inside a MRI machine or cook them up with electrodes and then challenge them intentionally through a through an experiment and see what happens in their brain. So I think it was that work uh, that really stimulated his curiosity and he felt that it balanced the story. Um, also, I wouldn't have written the book without him because the science story, uh, as interesting as it is, I think falls flat without the real world aspect, which I didn't do any research on at all. So I think that, that that's what made sense to me and, and convinced me. So it was my functional imaging work showing that we don't really multitask um, when it comes to what happens in our brains, even though we try to do it in real life. So, Yeah, that episode got started where I was having a conversation with my wife about multitasking. And I said, I think I read somewhere that that wasn't really a thing. You just hyper transition between tasks, something like that. So I had my production team go find a, uh, yes, I use my business to win arguments with my wife. So. <laughs> That makes tons of sense. She's my best friend. She's awesome. But when I saw that you did video games and Larry said that you were an awesome human being, I thought I want to understand better the intersection of video games and neurology. Sure. Yeah, we could dive into that. It's It's a big story. The nugget there is that our brains respond to experience and they change themselves. Our brains change at every level, structure of the brain, the chemistry, the physiology, all in response to experiences. This is a core foundational aspect of neuroscience, um, experience-based neuroplasticity, well-studied in animal models and humans for decades. However, the translation of that fundamental basic science to tools and medicines that we use to actually improve our brains is lacking, tragically. Um, we've done a much better job at translating what we've learned about the molecular neuroscience of the brain, neurotransmitters that has fed our current paradigm where a pill is used to fix your brain. Um, I was interested in flipping that around and understanding how we can use experiences to improve brain function by harnessing plasticity more effectively. And that logic base over there led to now 15 years of working on developing and validating video games as experiences, targeted experiences that can improve brain function. And how do you make money? Do you sell these video games? Well, I don't really make a lot of money <laughs> um, because, well, let, let, let me let me clarify that. I wear two hats and I always have to speak from both of them and make it clear which one I'm speaking from. So 
I am a university professor, uh, first and foremost. I have a 100% uh, appointment at U University of California, San Francisco. I'm the director of a research center called Neuroscape. And we don't, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit. Yeah, yeah we're, exactly. We're, we're a nonprofit and we, um, we bring in not financial investments. Uh, we bring in grants and philanthropy. And we do research and write papers and also publish IP, intellectual property and patents. But um, we're not a company, we don't make products and so we don't make money in that way. My other hat is that I am the co-founder and uh, a board member of Achille, which does make money and hopefully will make more. Um, and we sell a video game as a medical treatment for children with ADHD. That is our, our first product. It is the first ever video game approved by the FDA um, as a medical treatment, which happened in 2020. We're quite proud of that. It was a over a decade uh, journey to get there. And so th that's the other side, and that is a for-profit company. And we are expanding um, our market by having you know more people uh, that we could prescribe to and, and trying to look at different indications. So that's the first video game ever for anything approved for a medical treatment? Correct. Dude, that's so cool. You must feel super excited about that. It is exciting. Um, it's an interesting uh, milestone uh, because it's so sort of jarring in some way. Like, oh, video games, and you could only obtain this by a prescription, and it's for children with ADHD. And, you know, it, it raises a lot of questions, especially because I wrote a book called The Distracted Mind. But it is really exciting. Um, I think it's exciting um, in a very practical way for children that are suffering this condition with ADHD right now, and their only real alternative are stimulants, which a lot of children and their parents don't want them to have. So it's a, it's great to have a opportunity to try different treatments that are FDA approved. Uh, but on a bigger level, it is, I hope, the beginnings of a paradigm shift where we're not thinking about medicine as pills, medicine as molecules, but medicine can be experiences as well. And so Hopefully this is the beginning of experiential medicine being actually moved through the FDA and, and thought of as real medicine. That's pretty interesting. I read with some of the PTSD patients, they were using light doses of psychedelics to help counsel them through those experiences because of the neuroplasticity effect on it. We actually do that research right here at Neuroscape. Uh, so oh, you do? We, we do. We have a PTSD trial. Um, that was just completed using MDMA, also known as ecstasy, mm -hmm. in that study. So that's probably the one that you're referring to. That study is now completed and has been submitted for publication, and the results are outstanding. Uh, same idea. It sounds very different to talk about a video game and psychedelics uh, in the same breath as a similar treatment, but to me, they are both experiential medicines. Um, granted, psychedelics uses a molecule to initiate that experience, while uh, a video game uses a device. Uh, but in the end, they are similar because their outcomes are driven by the experience itself. Whether the outcome is positive, negative, or neutral is really a product of that experience that it creates. And so we study both of them here at Neuroscape because that, that's really what our focus is. So the, the, independent of how those two treatments are initiated, we're mostly focused on how we can shape and guide that experience to lead to better outcomes. Earlier, you said that your your brain through experiences is shaped even on a physical level. 
Is there currently any science where you could say something along the lines of, I can tell how much of this specific experience a person has had based off of the brain structure. I could tell they've played hundreds of hours of video games a month, or I can tell that they've gone through really difficult things in their life. And maybe that's why they're hardened a little bit or. Yeah, it's a great question. I would say no. Um, unfortunately that that reverse inference, like looking at a person's brain, understanding what experiences led to that are not really in our grasp right now, largely because most of our neuroscience data, um, especially the human data, is really population data. And so all the individual differences are not really accounted for, explained fully. I think that's a shift in neuroscience now to understand what we can say about an individual from looking at their brain. But what you described is really out of our reach. The reverse case is true. You can introduce someone to an experience, record their brain before and after, and see what it does. Um, so that's something that that's essentially what we do all the time. That's, you know, the, I would say, a foundational aspect of our experimental design is to understand what the impact on the brain is for each individual that engages in one of our experiential treatments. Hmm. How is this technology changed? You, you said specifically it took like 10 years for this FDA uh -huh. thing. You've been doing this for quite a while now. How has the technology changed or gotten better as far as your tools? Hmm. Yeah, so... 10 years was from the idea in 2008 of a video game. Um, that's actually 15 years now because we've, we've had approval for a little while. The idea that I had of a video game being built, not just used off the shelves, a video game being developed intentionally for the purposes of enhancing attention. And those early days of research were interesting because we didn't really... In 2008, we weren't really using mobile devices for that, um, and uh, we were using iPads. Excuse me, we were using laptops and joysticks. And so it was a little, even though it wasn't that long ago, 15 years ago, it was still a little, you know, unsophisticated in how we were delivering it. And that was just our first research trial, and it was actually quite successful in terms of the outcomes. We published it in, in Nature in 2013 as a cover of the journal, very exciting scientific moment. But... The technology was pretty primitive compared to where we are now. So now where that has evolved is that everything is mobile, right? So phones, tablets being the number one tools that we deliver, which weren't really accessible at that time. We also have immersive technologies that we did not have then that we use now. So we have a, a lot of our research are delivering these closed loop video games. We could, we could break that down if you'd like, but we call them closed loop video games in uh, mantle displays for virtual reality type of delivery, which has its unique advantages. And, you know, much better use of the cloud for storage and, you know, quicker processing for real-time adaptivity and better uh, tools to create games. Uh, you know, tools like Unity that allow us to build them in a research center without engaging in a big commercial developer. So all of those are examples of technological advances over the last 15 years that have made what we do better and easier to do um, when we're just incubating and really being completely innovative and trying things. We now have a set of tools that allow us to do that um, reasonably um, at, at a reasonable cost, which is a big deal for us because we're a research center. I have uh, three kids, ages five, four, and then eight months. 
Now, my five-year-old and my four-year-old started playing video games about a year ago, specifically this one called Raymond's Legends. It's, it's a pretty I, interesting mm-hmm. one. I know. And, it. oh, you do know it? Good. Okay, so you know what that style is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so they've, they've beaten it now, and they're five and four. And my wife and I, before we even had kids, couldn't beat it. <laughs> We didn't, how much time were we applying to it, right? But I'm curious, when when we were discussing introducing video games to the kids, we were trying to figure out, like, content aside, right? Like, let's just say it's a benign sort of, like, racing game or something like that. Are they learning things through that? Is that helping their brain develop? Is it, like, exercise for the brain? Is it not? Tell me about that. It's a great question. It's one that I think about a lot, both as a researcher and as a developer in the space, but also as a dad of a two-year-old now. Um, and there are video games for toddlers, you know, for, for the littlest ones. And they're really educational video games where they're learning letters. And um, But I think that's a pretty, pretty cool way of, of if you have to expose to some screen time, it seems like a pretty good one. Yeah, unfortunately, the answer is not easy. I wish it was easy, but it, it always is the answer uh, of, for us scientists, it depends, right? So it really depends on the content. And I would say in general, you know, if you, if you go back to the foundational principles, our brains respond to experiences. It's the entire basis of learning. Um, and it is really rich and robust in little ones, right? Their neuroplasticity is the highest it's ever going to be, which is why they could just pick up languages, you know, where her daughter is too. And She's already on her third language acquisition now. Uh, so that's the opportunity is to really present content that is valuable and approaches and processes that help their brains develop. And is our video games an option there? And I, I think for sure they're just like any other type of experience in the sense that they could be presented and you can decide which ones and how much. But all of that are the details that we don't understand yet. And that's why it depends, right? So any experience, whether it's a game or playing outside, you know, or going to school can change their brain in some way or in a non-meaningful, sustainable way also. And so it's just picking what are those uh, exposures that are going to have the most value and then, um, you know, applying them also in moderation, keeping, you know, a broad diversity. So I would say, you know, it, it really depends on the child, it depends on the game, and it depends on how much time they're being exposed to it. But there's not a ton of research um, yet on younger children and and these type of targeted video games and what their outcomes might be. But it's an area that we're, we're already working on at Neuroscape and want to understand better. Yeah. How can I, is there, you have a mailing list or some way I can sign yeah. up to... What is that? For sure. So if you go on our Neuroscape website, neuroscape.ucsf.edu, we have a mailing list there. And we um, we definitely don't over, you know, sort of email our, uh, our guests, but um, we do let people know when there are research studies that they can participate in. A lot of people sign up for that reason. And I would say it's about to get a lot better to be on that mailing list because our research has largely focused locally in San Francisco because we would have our research participants come down to the laboratories, usually get brain scans. And so we were only calling from a small area of people that can reach, you know, UCSF and, and, and you know, with, within a reasonable amount of time. 
But we have been developing for the last five years a research platform that we call Nexus that allows us to do large-scale remote distributed trials. And so the studies that we will be announcing later this year, pretty much anyone can join. Um, you know, right now, most feasibly within the U.S., because there's a lot of complexities with data being transmitted around the world, we would like to fix that problem. We want these to be global studies. But that's a, a direction that we're going in, is having people anywhere, even if they're not near a large university, have the opportunity to participate in, in research, especially this type of research that has low side effects and people play video games anyway. So that's something we're excited about. Why go the prescription route if the goal is to sort of maximize effectiveness mm -hmm. and the data you could get? It would to me, and I'm, I'm ignorant, I don't understand your business model at all. Yeah. So I would just think by a layman from the outside, oh, making this available in an app store would get yield you a significant amount of traffic. Parents would buy it left and right because it's like, get your kid off Adderall, get them onto you know, yeah. a video game. They're like, yep, I'll do that. But I'm assuming there's some strategy as to why you went FDA and prescription and all of that. Can you share? Yeah, I can share it. So first, you know, wearing my Neuroscape hat, we have many games that we've built. Some are meditation-based. Others are, as I said, in VR, we have a rhythm game, a, a three, you know, virtual reality a navigation tool. Those are not necessarily targeting FDA routes. Those are still in the lab, right? So their future is unknown. They may go a complete wellness model or an educational tool or maybe the medical path. So that that's important to note that most of the things that we've developed are still in the research setting, we just had a number of publications, and so now the goal is to move them out of the lab in some way. So that's one hat. On the Achilles side, yes, our, our treatment right now is FDA approved and is prescription only. The reason why we started that route, well, th there's two things, so I'll, I'll dissect that a bit. We wanted to take this game through the FDA and have it approved as a medical device, and that was a really tough pathway. No one had ever done it, as we've talked about, and uh, because of that, the FDA has a pathway called the de novo pathway, as opposed to that predicate pathway. Predicate meat is what like almost every drug that's come out recently, you know, including every SSRIs, they're, they're resting on a predicate that came before them. And the pathway is a lot faster. If you have a treatment that has never gone through the FDA, it's completely new de novo, then it's a lot longer path. And we had a de novo uh treatment because no one had ever tried to have something like this approved. So it was a lot to move the game through this. We did a big large-scale research trial. We pre-submitted. The process was like five years from submission all the way to approval. And our results were quite strong, which is why it, it was approved. So why the FDA? Well, right now, um, as, as most people are aware, if your child has ADHD, the FDA-approved pathway is a stimulant like Adderall. And we felt strongly that we want to have the approval of the FDA showing that the rigor and the validation was there so that parents, which all care about their children very much, would be able to have confidence that someone somewhere smart um, was vetting this um, at a level that sort of took the pressure off of them to like read our primary papers and understand that this is something that has been shown to be effective and um, and low side effect, at least enough to have approval. So that was really important to us. And also like what I've mentioned, the paradigm of medicine is a pill. We want to change that paradigm. And, and uh, an important pathway to do that 
is to essentially sort of play by the rules and like, okay, this is how medicine is approved. We believe we're medicine. We're going to do, run the trial just like it's a drug trial and get approval just like it's a drug. And we did that. Now, um, uh, most um, devices and drugs that are approved then enter the market as prescription. There is another pathway called over-the-counter. Um, and, you know, we're, we're exploring these right now. Um, so this is part of where we are as a business and understanding how we can most effectively deliver to as many people as possible and be able to, uh, you know, be successful as a company. So we're, we're exploring those models right now. And now that I hear you talking about it, the marketing side of me says prescription out first would probably be pretty good because it has the additional validity to it. Like it makes me feel like it's more effective knowing that it's prescription only. I don't know why, but that's why I feel like. I think that that's part of the psychology that we were aware of. And also it's competitors are prescription based, right? Adderall ah. is. So we want this not to seem like alternative. We want this to seem like mainstream medicine and not seem to be mainstream medicine. And therefore we approached it that way because unfortunately experiential treatments, whether they're therapy or meditation and mindfulness, and there are many real world experiential medicines. I would say we're a, a technologically delivered experiential medicine, which is what makes us quite unique. They have often been marginalized as alternative, right? Medicine is this bill or this operation. Everything else is like, you know, stuff we do in Northern California or, you know, it's just like sort of not medicine. It's it's the alternative if like you're not comfortable with this. But that is not how we believe medicine should be viewed. This should be considered every bit as real medicine as taking a pill. And so that was part of the strategy of to do the hard work, both the research and the regulatory approvals to enter that domain. And now that we are there, we have much broader discussion, discussions about how we effectively meet, meet and, and serve the most people. Yeah, I like that. I don't know if, if you know this about me, but I've got a lot of doctors in the family. Yeah. And so my parents have a clinic down in Florida and they have their primary line of business, but it's called Peaks of Health. So it's health and wellness. But the things that they get most excited about is they'll take rare cases or cases where people are getting rejected from other doctors. And you can think of it like a very basic house, you know, that guy. And so they'll take these strange, odd cases and, and they'll help work work through them and find treatments and they'll explore things that aren't necessarily like the exact known treatment and uh, all of all of this stuff. So I'm around that quite a bit. And I was actually thinking, that's I was cool. like, hmm, if I want to call, if I want to call them up after this and be like, hey, can they prescribe it? That's one question is, can any doctor in the United States prescribe this? Yeah. You know, it, it's like every other prescribable treatment. People prescribe it on label, off label. That's you know, at the discretion of the physician, just like it is for Adderall, for any any drug. And so you want to, you know, they're going to make a decision based on the data and based on the patient. Yes. And I would like to also point out our indication uh, right now by the FDA are for children 8 to 12 years old to treat their attention, um, improve their attention. But we just have uh, top line results of two research studies. One um, that was announced earlier this year showing that the attention improvement that we found with children in adolescence is twice as strong. So that has now been submitted to the FDA to expand our indication from eight to 12. That will go from 12 now to 18. And just a couple of weeks ago, we announced our adult ADHD data, which showed seven times the benefit that we saw with children. So um, we're really, obviously really excited about that because adult ADHD 
is increasing probably because of a combination of awareness and the pandemic to some degree could be contributing to that as well, all the the fallout of what we we just all experience globally. So um, and you know, there's an Adderall shortage. It's it's, it's not a, a bad time to have an alternative treatment for adults. So that's another focus area that we're now going to move into because we have the data. So we're, we're a very data driven company. I think it's it's maybe frustrating to a lot of people that we don't have more things out there, but we choose to take a very slow, rigorous path and get them out there when we think it's appropriate and reach the level of evidence that we're confident to say that, you know, this is reasonable for you to take. Uh, so that's that's sort of the next step for us. Because you're new kids on the block type deal with being the pioneers putting this video game out, it's prescription based. How did the insurance companies respond to you? It's a process. Um, you know, insurance companies don't really like taking risks and doing things that are unknown uh, in general, nor does the uh, FDA. So it's a process, the, you know, and, and not just for us. It's for true for any new drug or device. There is a, always a gap between FDA approval and insurance reimbursement because the type of data that they consider when making decisions are very different. So FDA is like and require uh, randomized controlled trials, pre-submitted, there's a, there's a method. And then insurance companies care less about that. They want to understand the real world impact and that just takes time. So we're in the market now, we have almost 10,000 prescriptions written for children in all 50 states. So, um, and we just really launched our sales force. So it's, it's growing consistently, but you know, it's still early days and that, that data that will be generated from the real world use by children, um, hopefully will convince insurance companies that this is an important thing to reimburse for. So we are getting some organic, natural um, insurance reimbursement for this, but we need a lot more. We need we need the big insurance companies to step up and recognize that we have, you know, a crisis going on of attention fragmentation and challenges and that this is a treatment that has gone through the rigorous research and is important to reimburse for because people, you know, need that financial support uh, for treatment. So that is something we feel really strongly about. And I hope someone's listening to this that uh, that is associated with insurance companies and realizes that this is something that is worth, you know, covering. Do you have any stories of a parent who their eight to 12 year old was on an ADHD medication and then they flipped them to this game and they successfully weaned them off that medication and they're having the same effect or something like that. We have many, many stories. It, it's interesting for me as a scientist uh, because, you know, I publish papers, I look at statistical effects. That's the world I live in. And now, um, for the first time in my life, I have a treatment out there and that data is equally important. But now it's, it's just as important to hear from a single N of one parent and family tell a story to me. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And we, we've published many of those. Uh, I, I did a, a, a nice little podcast with Sanjay Gupta from CNN. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one's out there. Um, and he talks to the family, which, which is just like the family described. And the mom is tearing because uh, she was so profoundly affected. I mean, it's like dizzying for the inventor of this technology to, to listen to this because I only had my exchange with Sanjay. I didn't actually hear her part until it was finally released. But um, yeah, I have met those families and, and, and the children. And it's, 
It's incredibly powerful uh, for me to hear those reports and, and know that it's not just statistically significant in a paper, but it's meaningfully impacting people's lives. It's just incredible. It's every scientist's dream. If I ever got to talk to Sanjay, I'd be like, so if you could do Joe Rogan over again, <laughs> would, you, would you do anything different? Oh. Yeah, uh, Sanjay, Sanjay's great. We've known each other for many, many years. We did a whole segment at CNN a long time ago before oh, you did? this nice. was approved. Yeah, we have a three-part segment on this, and he's he actually plays the game. And, you know, I'm like, this is going to be FDA approved one day. And it was like so many years later that it finally happened. Uh, so at, at some point I was like, ooh, this better happen because I really did call that out pretty boldly. Um, but we got there. You do a pretty good job of personal branding. Like when Larry told me about you, we started we knew a little bit about you because you were a co-author of the book. But when we were talking, we we said, wow, this guy actually sounds pretty interesting. Let's see if we can get him on the show. And we started researching you. And one of the things that stood out was that you do a really good job with uh, being articulate, clear, data-driven. You can express your ideas well. You've got a good presence online. Do you think about that a lot? Do you have a team that helps you with that? What are you doing there? Oh, well, thank you, first of all. Um, yeah, I care about it a ton because I think like a mandate of being a scientist is to communicate science. And so I don't I don't have a team. I just it's just something I, I think about a lot. I, I practice a lot and I do it a lot. So, you know, I've learned from you know, I've given over like seven hundred talks and many podcasts and I also talk to friends about science a lot, uh, that are not scientists. So you just learn through through exposure, but it is really important to me to do the rigorous work and then to present it in a way that is accessible and as real and as close to what the research shows as possible. And it's really it's really challenging because when we present research to each other, to other scientists, there's like a statement and then there's like 15 caveats. <laughs> we always talk in caveats because it's appropriate because nothing is 100%. There's always like this or that or that. And then when you talk to the public, like no one wants to hear a statement followed by, you know, a citation and then 15 caveats. So it's a it's tricky business of how do you present science in a way that's as close to what's appropriate as as possible and still make it accessible. So a lot of scientists completely you know, shy away from any contact with anyone other than than scientists because of that. Yeah, yeah. The general public, like if you just go out and do man on the street interviews, <laughs> well, you've seen the videos. I won't comment farther. Uh, diagnosing ADHD. I'm curious. So I believe that this is such a common phrase, ADHD, like in society we go about and then there's this, what I would call collective consciousness understanding where it's like, uh -huh. okay, the kid's bouncing around, ADHD, give them a pill, maybe they focus. That's clearly like probably pretty wrong. Can you uh -huh. explain to me exactly what ADHD and how it is and how it manifests itself inside of uh, children? Yeah, this is a challenging question. It shouldn't be, but it is because unlike many fields of medicine, um, let's say cardiology, and we'll talk about, you know, blood pressure, hypertension, and high cholesterol, cholesterolemia, right? Um, we have like very well-defined biomarkers uh, that we set levels at. If your blood pressure is over this on two visits, if your if your cholesterol is this level and it maintains that way, we it triggers something and we have a treatment. And those th those levels change as data presents itself, and and what you do with that data changes. That's true of everything in medicine. 
But there are those real quantitative markers that uh, inform decisions. In psychiatry, unfortunately, most of the conditions like ADHD and autism and even depression, anxiety are really a list of subjective um, symptoms that sometimes they're presented not even by the patient themselves. Like in the case of ADHD, it's often the parent's impression or teacher's impression. And so you wind up with a moving target, which creates a lot of confusion, a rapidly moving target of what ADHD is. So there's a checklist of symptoms that basically you move through, a doctor will move through, and depending on how many you get uh, in different columns, you could be diagnosed with inattentive ADHD, you could be diagnosed with hyperactive ADHD, or mixed, where you have features of both. And that's really it. And and what's in that list changes a lot. So there's no, there are cognitive tests that offer quantitative data, but they are just supportive. They don't really help define the diagnosis. And so this is this is the challenge is that we move the, the, the mark a lot and they are subjective. Uh, so that creates a lot of confusion for people about what the, what these conditions are. So with ADHD in particular for children, the in it most fall in the mixed type where you have a bit of inattentiveness and a bit of hyperactivity. They're both forms of inattention, but one presents itself motorically with a lot of movement, jumping out of the seat, more behavioral. And the inattentive doesn't present itself that way as much, but pre- pre- presents itself as like maybe poor school performance, thinking that someone's not, you know, focusing and, and losing the train of conversations. Girls, young girls, have more... Um, of the inattentive type. And so they're often missed, including women as well, uh, because their behavioral manifestations are less. And so a teacher may not notice it and, and misdiagnosis as as something else that's contributing to maybe like a mood disorder. Uh, so this is a little bit of the complexity with ADHD. And I would say that complexity that I described, like the poor subjective diagnostic features that are changing all the time, collide with the fact that everyone has sharp trouble with attention to some degree. Yeah. And, you know, everyone, uh, you know, it's a comp, you know, that was the basis of the whole book, Distracted Mind. It's, you know, our brains have a, a set of abilities that, that are really impressive, but they are have limitations and they collide with our technical world and create all of these challenges that everyone experiences all the time. So when you're thinking about ADHD, you're like, well, I have some attention problems. I find myself distracted. I can't get something done without like moving over to social media. And I would say that the fact that people know what the burden of attention is complicates the diagnosis more. So for example, like diabetes, like either have it or not, you're not like, oh, I feel a little diabetic now. <laughs> um, you know, you don't have the subjective experience, which, which, which um, you know, keeps it a little cleaner diagnostically. So that that's a little bit of why I think it's so challenging, um, especially with the pandemic, I would say, the presence of inattention and its clear impact on people's lives became really prominent when you're like locked in your house with your kids and, you know, kept away from work. So that's, you know, another factor that is impossible to ignore. Yeah. So it's an attention disorder, right? It's defined as an attention disorder that has a set of features that establish the criteria upon which the diagnosis is made. I'd say that's like the simplest way of presenting it. That being said, there are a lot, there could be lots of causes for it. And it also has a lot of comorbidity with other conditions like autism, 
and mood disorders. So it doesn't have like, you know, here's, let's look at someone's brain. Oh, they have ADHD. That's what I mean, that it doesn't have that real quantitative yeah. marker. But it is an attentional disorder where the challenges with attention are reaching a level of functional impairment that something, you know, is advised to be done for it when you reach that criteria. So, and you, and you can measure this attention, right? You can measure it before and that's what you would do, right? You would say you find some way to measure the length of attention. Yeah, so so that that's what I was trying to allude to. So those tools exist, but they're not required for the diagnosis and they're often not used for the diagnosis. The diagnosis can exist totally on the subjective aspects of it, but the tools to measure attention exist. We use them all the time. We use those tools, um, those diagnostic tests of attention as outcome measures in our clinical trials so that we so, can so just, actually just... quantify it. Sorry to interrupt you, but I, yeah, I, please. I'm excited and I just want to, yeah. really, I'm an engineer, I'm not a scientist, but yeah. I, I, I'm trying to, we, it's an attention disorder. We have tools that measure attention in order to diagnose it. We don't use the tools that measure attention to create the diagnosis. How is that a thing? It's historical. Um, I, I've argued about this quite a bit, uh, that we need to bring objective measures to this field as they are in every other field. Um, but it's, it's slow. These, these big institutional sy systems are really really lagging. It's not only true for the diagnosis, as I, as I described, but it's also true on even what the FDA considers as meaningful outcomes in studies. They would, mm. they would reflexively go to those subjective measures before objective measures, interestingly enough. Um, so it's part of a shift that I think is occurring now as we validate these tests more and more, and they need to be validated and show that they have real world, um, you know, uh, meaning. But I, I agree. We we need to have them, and we have many of these tests. We use them in the laboratory all the time. They they could tell you how stable your attention is. Uh, so we could look at how response times change across periods of exposure. We call that response time variability, RTV. And there's lots of other measures that can be assessed from tests that really give us a fine grained understanding of how your attention is operating. And attention is really a broad concept, this selective attention, this sustained attention, this bottom-up attention, top-down attention. It's it's really quite um, complicated, but we have tools to assess all those things. Now, so <laughs> trying to make sure I get this out right. So I'm cool with that. Like, I don't imagine everything's logical because I'm 35, so I have a little bit of experience in life. And <laughs> that's one of the things I tell my team all the time. Step one, throw logic out the door. Step two, I <laughs> figure out how the right. system's working and play the game. Yep. So these, I just want to better understand and use okay. the right phrases. So it, you said subjective, but like if, if I'm saying, if I create some sort of test and I say, okay, I think they might have this, symptom you're by definition of disorders anything that's like you would take the average and you'd say okay over here is this is what the standard is this is what a normal kid is and if you deviate that by some degree eventually if, it, if the deviation's large enough you have this disorder correct so who is that group that they're using as like here is what a perfect kid is at this age and then here is how far you deviate from that as far as your manifestation of attention disorder so there's this big manual called the DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manu Manual, and there are groups of experts that convene to form the criteria for every condition that exists. And they put out a recommendation, and then they update it, and it usually changes. Sometimes conditions disappear, sometimes new conditions enter. I've not been on one of those, so I don't know the process in detail, but they're looking, and you know, 
a lot of times probably using intuition and logic and their their clinical experience to determine what those criteria should be, how many you need to check and things of that nature. Okay. All right. And then, so they are determining the framework for what constitutes the definite, like somebody meeting that criteria. Correct. And, and then that, then if you meet that criteria within those rule sets, you have this condition. Correct. And then they let the people subjectively answer questions that could potentially, that could meet that criteria and, and have that condition. Correct. Okay. As a parent, I've got boys and girls, very different, right? The girl is, she's technically would be starting kindergarten in three or four months. She's about to finish grade one because we have her, we homeschool her and we have a tablet system and a whole thing we pay for and they can just go through at their own pace and she happens to just want to wake up every morning and do it. Also, the check marks to get through school. School is highly inefficient. It's a giant babysitter club because <laughs> you can teach your kids everything they need to know to pass the standardized exams in like 35 minutes a day. That's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. But for for her, her, the way she does attention and the way she does things, vastly different than her brother. But when I put certain activities in front of her brother, you get that laser focus. When I put certain activities in front of her, you get that laser focus. And they tend to be good at different types mm-hmm. of focusing and activities. So with it being so ambiguous, like how, I know I already asked you how they do it, but it, yeah, what so- am I reaching for? There's there's another piece, which is the medical professional. So it's not something that you just check all these boxes, done, I have this, but it occurs in the context of a clinical visit. It could be with a psychologist, it could be with a pediatrician, it could be with a psychiatrist, a primary medical family doctor. And the decision is a collection of that data, maybe even some cognitive tests. I think that that's great if that occurs, because it gives a little quantitative metrics that can be followed. And then it's a clinical impression that, you know, based upon my experience, based upon your child and and these other details that might not fit directly into the list, I, I think your child has ADHD. And, you know, it's, it. it's not it's not entirely dissimilar on the other end of this life spectrum. So like dementia diagnosis is also a, a checklist of things that, you know, your cognition is not great, but it's now reached the level that it's impairing your life, it's causing functional impairment, and thus your dad has dementia. So, you know, that that's the that's the other piece is that there is a medical system of experts that have lots of experience that help guide you through this diagnosis and whether or not the diagnosis is even appropriate. And that's, you know, that's a good thing. Like humans are are in the loop here and, and they should be, at least where we are right now. And so I think that that's like another factor is that hopefully that clinician has a lot of experience and can and spends the appropriate time with a parent and their child and cannot just reflexively check a list, but say, yeah, I think that there's something here that mm-hmm. is deviating enough from my experience of normal, not just checking the boxes, but that I would say that th- that diagnosis is appropriate. Yeah, I guess. So I'm definitely biased because I have looked at the not not anytime recently, but about two years ago, I looked at the the rate of increase in children being prescribed stimulants for this. And I'm just like, there's no way 80 percent of our population or it, was, it wasn't 80 percent, but it was it was growing and it was super it was higher than I wanted it to be. This was before I had kids. Right. A couple of years ago. And I was like, wow, that's 
That's bonkers. And so one of the general stories that I would just hear people talking about in life would be, oh yeah, you know, Bobby, he um, wasn't sitting still in class and his teacher brought it up to us and we put him on ADHD medication. And then I had my son, right? And he's about four. And I was like, wow, like he wouldn't sit, if he was in school, he wasn't homeschooled, right? He wouldn't sit still in class. This kid wants to run around. He wants to play. He wants to do things, but then he'll, he'll like certain things. And then he'll sit down and like, want to do those with like laser mm-hmm. focus. And so it's more of like finding, okay, what type of kid is Lachlan? Like, how do I mm-hmm. um, engage him? We have found these great, so this is just feedback from us mm-hmm. for, for you. So we have found these great videos hey. that work really, really well for Lachlan on YouTube. Hey. And they're super cheesy, but he'll be like running and then like jumping and then there's stuff going across like storyboard style on the screen. And so it basically gets them like, oh, we're running from the dinosaur. And there's this like cartoon dinosaur and it's an actual human child on the screen screen. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's like, have you seen these before? No, No, but I I want to get a a link from you. Yes. So that is when it's, uh, we live in Tennessee. So when it's too cold or too hot to go outside, we will use that as their sort of PE, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Cause they'll sit there and they'll run and they'll jump and then That's they have cool. different versions of it. And these, these videos, man, have like 58 million views. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So we have found those to be incredibly useful. So when you start talking about this idea of experience or video games or videos or something like that, actually having an impact on their, the way they think or their body. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm 100% on that train and I'm definitely on the train of we should just take a step back from the ridiculous amount of stimulant prescription for children and and consider things like video games. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's a good connection point that you made and I just want to pause on it because we've been largely talking about diagnosis, uh, but diagnosis and treatment are like woven together and depending on what the treatment is, diagnosis is a really different concept, right? So making an ADHD diagnosis in the setting, in the status quo that the really only FDA approved treatment is a stimulant is much more complicated in my mind than a future where hopefully we're just the first, that there are experiential treatments that have very low side effects that can be offered, that have the level of validation that you could at least trust them to try. That changes a lot because now the ADHD diagnosis is is offered to a parent as this is the reality with a whole set of options that are going to have different comfort levels for different people. That really changes the whole thing, right? Because offering a diagnosis with like, and here is your choice and it is Adderall, you know, it is a stimulant is, is not really ideal, right? We need to have more options that have gone through the rigorous process of, of validation that um, can be presented by a physician as here, here, here's the list and we could try this, we could try that. And uh, that's a much better future. And it changes how you think about diagnosis because now I'd say diagnosis really needs a high bar because that's because that diagnosis really leads almost like a direct path to a lot of people to these treatments, uh, which I think are less less than ideal. Uh, so that's another way of thinking about the complexity of diagnosis. When you have one treatment, what happens with diagnosis is a lot more serious. Yeah. What else do we want to get out there to the world? I want to make sure I'm cognizant of your time and I want to make yeah. sure we get the right message out to the audience. How can people, if they want this prescription for their kids, we've got a lot of parents that listen, right? If they're yeah. interested in, in this prescription, what do they tell their doctor? Yeah, that there is a, a game that is FDA approved. Um, it's called Endeavor RX. 
and that they want to hear more about it or they want to you know try it. I think that that is certainly something that I w- w- would recommend if friends reached out to me. I'm not saying that this is a panacea and it's a you know cure for everyone. I mean, there's lots of variability, but it is uh, you know we did the work and. It, it is certainly something that should be presented as, as an option, uh, especially because the other options are just so limited and, you know, big decisions for a parent. I feel it not just intellectually as a scientist, but as a dad of a two-year-old right now. So, I you know, I, I would hope that it's at least something that they could talk about with the physician and they could look at the data and, and you know, make a um, you know decision together if this is an option for them. If people want to watch stories or read stories of other parents who've made the transition from stimulant to video game, where can they do that? That is a great question. I believe that we have some of those testimonials up on our on our website, and I could share those links with you. But uh, we should do more of it because we really have a large collection of them, and I, I think that it is really valuable. Cool. Well, we'll add those to the show notes. Um, if not, if we can't find them, we'll just put it more useful, cool information. I've actually gotten to see a couple of videos of you, like on YouTube, showing the video game off. And so there's definitely visuals that we have and you can oh, see yeah. it for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, um, but, the, but those, those testimonials, you know, we think of them as valuable, especially for physicians to say, oh, look, look at this. This is not just a paper or a series of publications and FDA approval, but these are these are parents that are like, wow, okay, this was meaningful to me. But it is also very valuable to other parents to know that. So I think that it's a good message that we could communicate. We should find ways to really make that accessible for people. I love it. And what's the website? EndeavorRx. Um, and yeah, I'll put that. Achilles is the name of, of the company, so you could find okay. it either way. Cool. We did it. Adam, we made a podcast, man. How do you feel? great. It was so much fun. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.